1: Second
2: time it done. gone, oh. never go home, they
0: never go home, they
2: never go home, those, those, those boys. That's,
0: yeah. They have asked for that,
2: really. Oh, you can laugh was the walk up.
0: I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be
2: like me. I don't know what you're talking about. What if you want yeah. it. to stay alive for six I'm going to need I'd say it to you, guys, I'll say it to now. you now. But what down to Anfield and we'll see them, will What
3: you doing down here, you sure mean, man. Hello, everybody. Hope you had a lovely weekend and welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast. Ken Murph, I assume you both enjoyed seeing Zlatan Ibrahimovic back in the football pitch seven months on from tearing his ACL?
1: Uh, yes, indeed. Very much, Sean. Uh, the heartwarming tale of redemption since yeah. that. Never mm. fails to warm the cockles of my heart.
3: When he suffered the injury on April 20th, he was reported that he'd be out until January at the earliest next year. It was assumed that he'd be on his way out of Manchester United, and it was feared that his career could be finished. But as he said after the game on Saturday, lions don't recover like humans. Yeah. Well, around the same time as Zlatan did his cruciate, a member of the second captain's team also suffered the same injury. But he's recovered a lot more like a human than a lion. I think that's fair to say, Simon, yeah? A chicken legged human, yes. Yeah, Zlatan's attitude. When it happened, I said giving up was not an option. My only focus was on coming back and coming back better. I know it's my head playing, not my knee. My knee has to follow. Did you? What was your profound approach to injury recovery? And where are you in your well, room? giving up
1: was an option, and that was the option that Simon went for. <laughs> you
3: don't necessarily have to have a strong <laughs> knee to produce, uh, you know, a daily podcast. No, no. Uh, and in fact, I think three days after the surgery, I was in producing. Better than ever. I feel a little bit sorry uh, for... Brother it. pointed there, old, wasn't mm-hmm. it? I feel a little bit sorry for Zlatan, actually. I mean, what's what's the haste? What's the rush? What's he running from or to? <laughs> um, it's kind of a desperate man, I think, trying to salvage the end of his career. <laughs> We're playing the long game here. Um, who's going to be playing tennis into their 50s in the Zlatan? Probably Zlatan, That's, that's to the be real fair. test of success. Yeah, i say my Probably, money ver- probably very well. Zlatan. I'd say Zlatan's a good tennis player. <laughs> yeah. Now
1: do you mention it. Why don't we reconvene in 15 years' time and let's all take bets to see who would win a yeah. tennis game <laughs> played the following day between Zlatan Ibrahimović and Simon Hicks. He got a little cryptic,
3: I don't know if you saw this. If people knew the real injury, they would be in shock that I was even playing. It was more than the knee, but I will keep it personal.
4: Well, everything about this, this bloody injury has been the, the greatest... The Like you've never seen before. Like everything has just been this hype zone. I remember the injury was like, oh, it's the worst injury you've ever seen. He has, ru- he has ripped and ruptured every ligament in the knee. And then it was, the knee is the greatest knee that there's ever been. There's never been an, a knee like this before. You know, this is what his agent was saying. And then it's like this shortest uh, recovery from cruciate injury since Marvin Andrews. Do you remember Marvin? Marvin Andrews? Did he pray for recovery or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Um,
3: and lo, lo
4: and behold, he got the job done, done. Well, he he, uh, he he supposedly tore his cruciate ligament and returned two weeks later after intensive prayer. As Wikipedia says, he returned after just two weeks looking like there was nothing wrong with him. But uh, he uh, was released by rangers shortly after that. So you're not buying into all this hyper the injury. Well, time was talking about uh, the, you don't recover lions, that recover like humans. And he was like, Ugh. you know, it is, it is his... He, he, I don't think he thinks of himself really as being a lion or, or embodying the spirit of lions. Just a, just a bit of branding. Lions don't really recover from injuries at all. They become man eaters. What they do is because they're too, they're too slow and, and crippled to to um, to catch their usual quarry.
3: They just look for Welsh rugby players instead. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yes. Uh, any anything uh, slow moving and defenceless uh, becomes. Uh, Scott
1: Baldwin plays in the front
3: row and so. and, so and willing for. to stick their hand into your cage, ideally. You yeah, know, I mean, that's
4: the dream scenario for a lot. He doesn't even have to move. No, for Newcastle defenders at four one down. Um, I mean, I, I I don't know. It is it is interesting though. I mean, there was a, a very different feel around the whole Manchester United uh, match day. Owen uh, with the return match day experience much more significantly than uh, Zatan of Paul Pogba, who played really well. Um, the, I mean, they they had a bit of a disastrous start when Newcastle scored. And not only did they score and score via Lindelof making another mistake. I mean, the slip, it's unfortunate. But, you know, slip leading to goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw you saw Mourinho looking a bit stony-faced there. But there was also, you know, four Newcastle players swarming into the box. It's like, where's what, what just happened here? Uh, and Dwight Gale scored. But then Pogba gets him back in the game with this brilliant piece of play. This is the kind of thing that he can do. Not just kind of effortlessly... Making space to cross beyond the defender, but just a beautiful, precise cross. You know, no, no rush. It's not like he's just, you know, blamming it in there and seeing what happens. It's it's floated beautifully, Um, and he's playing really well. Uh, Obviously, scored a goal, beautiful goal, combining with uh, with Rashford, Um, and they they just had a much better look to the team, really, with you know Pogba and Mata both in midfield, and Rashford and Martial.
3: Who would have thought that? The most one of the most expensive players in the world would make such a difference. When <laughs> <laughs> well, it's
4: true, but well, you know, he, I you I, kind of are you thinking, well, obviously, Mourinho is, is going to embrace Fellaini now. Mourinho's Kukulin, and Fellaini is his rock. He will lash himself to the rock. But Fellaini was on the bench. There's some talk about Fellaini maybe leaving on a free transfer, which I, I don't think Mourinho would be in favor of, clearly. Uh, but he left him on the bench. You uh, saw a much better performance, uh, and then Zatan came on, and Zatan pointed. To Lukaku and pointed to the right wing and he said, That's where you go now. So <laughs> now Lukaku just scored. He literally just finished his his gold route from a from the central position and now he's being told to go to the right. So we have to see how that goes. Maybe Zatan will only be unleashed on the on the old, the weak and the sick from now on. Which is not to say, you know, someone's got to dispose of those guys. You know what I mean? So there, someone has to score in the in the easy games in the Premier League. So there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with being you need one or two flat track bullies. Uh and maybe that's the role Zatan has in mind. But you know, I I am interested to see how this is gonna go. Obviously Zatan is not a player who sits on the bench in Or in plays a mood on the wing. Of, in a mood of contentment. You know what I mean? Or or I mean he, he didn't play at the wing ten years ago, you yeah. know, when he when he was a bit more mobile, uh, and he hadn't done his his knee horribly. So it will be interesting to see how uh, he fits them all in but it's always good to have more players than you need when you're, when you're about to play you know 300 games over the next uh, five or six weeks whatever it is
3: Non-World Service members you continue to miss our Players Chair podcast with Richie Sadler which has been one of the runaway successes of the World Service last week he did an incredibly emotional interview with child sex abuse survivor and former England international Paul Stewart I'm familiar with this from working with others that one of the legacies of Childhood sexual abuse is—it impacts your closeness and personal relationships, and intimacy and affection, and telling people you love them—all of that stuff. Where are you now with all of that? Because that—I'm no
0: different, right? Um I have, what? Well, I'm still—I'm still unable to—to to do it. Uh, I have a grandchild, uh, Sienna who's eight months. Mm. Um, she's a baby, so she doesn't know. She doesn't. She doesn't understand. With her, I can, I can show as much love and affection as I want. Still, I, I struggle with my wife and my, my, my three children. Um, I very, very rarely use the word love. You can listen
3: to that chat in full with Paul Stewart when you become a World Service subscriber. You can also listen to all of Richie's back catalogue of interviews, which is I would recommend it if you get on board now. You go straight away and start your World Service adventure by listening to all the players' chairs. They've been great so far. You'll also get an induction pack, your podcasts, earlier on a Monday and free of the hard sales I'm giving you right now. We won't call you, you know, T-Rex arms or anything like that. Mm. And on top of that, you'll get podcasts... Some might see
1: that as a disrespectful one. Not me. You'll get, <laughs> you'll
3: get podcasts daily, which will mean you won't be left behind, and we'll be able to understand beds like this one.
4: 1850, 715, 815. Hello, good afternoon, and you're very welcome to Lion Live. live, live.
5: 5 one one is our text
4: number and joe at rt.ie from wherever you are in the world ken good afternoon how are you you saw it what happened i mean i actually was abused by dane as well mm-hmm. the night before go ahead i was i was i was having uh dinner after the the, the, you know, we finished our work or whatever on the Friday. Went into town. We were we were sitting in a restaurant. Uh, with, you were a journalist, uh, and uh, myself mm-hmm. and three other journalists. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point, we were. It turned out we were all looking at our phones simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Like we were waiting, waiting in the bill or something. Mm-hmm. And This Danish guy mm-hmm. staggered up from behind sort of, mm-hmm. suddenly on the table and he goes, "Go ahead." Is there a Wi-Fi? Is there a Wi-Fi in here? The whole thing, say, Ken. The whole thing is is getting more and more bizarre. You, you didn't do it, did you? Did you report that to the FAI or anything? We were like. Uh, uh, actually we're just still on the 3G mm-hmm. before we could finish explaining we weren't actually on the Wi-Fi he goes, Wi-Fi wankers you're all Wi-Fi wankers did he write because, this himself? Did he, we compose, were, or did he compose this line himself? you know, uh, he all he'd seen was for like, I don't know how he knew we were Irish but he, he knew mm-hmm.
0: Wi-Fi
2: wankers mm-hmm. you're all Wi-Fi wankers
3: Become a Wi-Fi wanker yourself by getting online and supporting independent journalism at secondcaptains.com forward slash join for just five euro a month plus fat. It's around about this time, Ken, that you usually report on some sport.
4: Well, it's it's typical, Owen. It's just a typical situation of what we face here in 2017, um, the sports media. What have we just been talking about? What did we start off this podcast with? Zlatan's injury? Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Right? It's that Dan Ibrahimovic. Why, do, why are we talking about that guy? He's like a, an old pasted guy who played 15 minutes uh, at the end of a 4-1 thrashing for his team, Manchester United. But of course, we talk about him. We sit here talking about him. And while we're talking about him, who are we not talking about, Owen? Who are we not talking about?
1: Well, everyone, everyone else. else.
4: <laughs> yes, but but most, uh, most significantly, Kevin De Bruyne, David Silva. Gabriel Jesus, Raheem Sterling. Oh, you
3: to say Manchester City, the much put upon, underreported club <laughs> of the Premier League. Well, season. this this
4: actually was the, was a team that that had emerged. I saw, I saw Neil Ashton on Sunday Supplement say, "Well, you know, I've been looking through these back these back pages, no sign of Man City anywhere. What's going on? Where, the, where is the credit? I, I assume that that Jamie Cargers Telegraph called him saying the maestro Guardiola is at his peak." Uh, we must enjoy him while he walks among us. Mustn't have been on <laughs> mustn't have been on one of the back pages. I did think that one of the sort of top uh, pundits in the country writing a worshipful piece about the genius of Guardiola would have you know sufficed as a sort of this weekend's recognition, sort of ration for a city. who were, of course, as always. Amazing. Well, that's the point, as always. There was nothing particularly different this time,
3: whereas there was a storyline or two coming out of the Manchester United performance. Although De Bruyne's goal, even amongst oh, his standout moments what a of goal. season, stands out. Just, oh. it, it, he just does things that other people don't do. It's not, he sees the pass and all that kind of stuff, but he also has the ability... He controls it, but he, first of all, starts off the move mm-hmm. with a brilliant touch. Well,
4: Fernandinho, nice ball by Fernandinho, but then De Bruyne pulls it down and then plays another great ball.
3: Yeah, and then he gets on the end of the return pass, controls on his right foot, and just does this little move where he sort
4: of shifts it with the outside of his left Immediately foot. Immediately takes it onto his left with no hesitation.
3: defender. it's one of those things where a defender just can't do anything. And, of course, then you're you're watching it going, he's obviously going to bury this into the top corner. Oh, we'll take that for granted. That's the easy part.
4: Yeah. It's just brilliant stuff. It was amazing. Um, and they're, they're playing brilliant football I mean, I just don't know what It's kind of it, it, it is that sort of thing of Well, this is happening every week So we're, you know I suppose John well, Stones is, John Stones got injured You know, maybe the wheels Are about to come off You know uh, yeah. yes, yes.
1: Well, no, it's just It's, it's not much of a defence Because I, we're all guilty of it I mean, we haven't talked about Man City Half as much as we've talked about Other clubs mm-hmm. so far this season But what they're doing every week Is playing unbelievable football like, absolutely just gorgeous to watch football. And I I don't know why we haven't been talking about it, but I
4: know that also that we're not alone. I,
1: mm. I mean, well, hang on. How, if Neil Ashton up? has... Well, we we, we've talked, we've about talked, about,
4: we talked about them a good Feels bit. We're talking about them all the time. But I think... Uh,
1: I don't know. It's the
4: fundamental Man City problem, which is that, you know, they are a, a kind of a Qatar or Abu Dhabi-funded super club. I mean, Man City, you know, this is like a host organism that, that like... That occupied the bo- discarded the the husk that was Man City. <laughs> you know, I mean, we all we all know this. The, the Man, Man City fans might be a bit, oh, you, you know, this, this is ridiculous, but it's kind of it's kind of true. This is not the, this is not the club you grew up supporting. It's a very different entity. But
1: Ken M- can't help.
3: Ken cannot help not talking a lot about whatever club Jose Mourinho was managing at the time. Mm. Also, so that's why we might be getting more Manchester United. I wouldn't necessarily
2: agree with Andy. Ken Early about football. There was
3: quite a bit of Chelsea. Yeah, I I think I do like Ah, Ken
2: Early's work. He writes (laughs) fluently and thinks
3: uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong. That was about Man City, wasn't it?
4: Um, That was about Guardiola. Yeah. um, I'm so happy, believe me. It was. It was about Guardiola, actually. That was when I was was, uh, accusing the Man City fans of it, in Amy Duffy's account, accusing the Man City fans of failing to grasp Guardiola's genius. Ah, so you're the Jamie Carragher of the group uh, at that stage. But um, where are we now, Tony yeah. Pulis? I mean, it, it is this, and I wonder. Well, it, it's that it's that problem that basically people kind of go. Well, yeah, of course you're playing great football. I mean, why shouldn't you be? You, you know, you've got all the advantages. Um, I, and I do wonder when I read Tony Pulis has been sacked. This is uh, this was sort of today's news. West Brom confirmed that if you watch Tony Pulis in his press conference um after they played chelsea i mean they they got Garrett Barry committed a horrific foul on eden hazard who got incredibly angry and proceeded to destroy them over the next 10 or 15 minutes it was really it, it really was a case of you oh, really shouldn't have done that poked the bear poked the bear the bear went absolutely crazy um had a shot which was saved morata scored then ran onto a lovely flick by morata i mean it was just the they were just ripping them up like it was oh it was like oh god this is too much And Tony Pulis Shameful
1: red mist Descended on Eden Eden (laughs) Hazard Shamefully Playing football Brilliantly Well yeah Exact revenge He did also Leave one in on One of the other
3: West Brom players Yeah Yeah
4: yeah, he did. Shortly after the, uh, shortly after the fail on him, and
3: then said about then realized he that's probably booked. not my best yeah. way of going about things. I will just destroy them with my football.
4: But you know, Tony Poulos had welcomed Chelsea in his programme most for saying a personal welcome to Antonio, who has shown in his. Sh-. Tell me what you think of this. Who has shown in his short spell in this country that he can that he can coach at the highest level with the biggest clubs and be a winner? <laughs> that's what really counts. Exclamation marks on both those sentences. What's he saying there? Is it like? Is he saying? Jurgen congratulations Klopp's, to
1: uh, terrible manager. Has he had some beef with Jurgen Klopp?
4: Pulis? Yeah, I, I don't. I can't remember if they've had a particular beef. I mean, they probably have. But is 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 Pulis saying there? Oh well done to Conte. win the league with Chelsea. None of us English managers would never be able to do that. Is that what he? Why well, has he always got to be a foreign manager? Is he? Is he? Is he actually saying that? Is he? Con- is that genuine? Congratulations to Conte. I, I do think that he respects Chelsea in the way they play football. I think that's. I think there's no doubt about that from from Pulis. I think he thinks. I think he relates to the way that, that, Ch- mm. that Conte has Chelsea playing. I'm not aware of any beef between them. But, like, oh, he's shown he can be a winner at the, with the biggest clubs. Congratulations. Mm. You know? Maybe there's a bit of that seeping into the... There, there always has been a bit of that with Cordial. Oh, you've got Messi. Oh, you've got Bayern. Mm. You've got Lewandowski. You know, you've got blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, team after team, we're seeing amazing stuff. You made the point today, Ken,
3: in your Irish Times column, that Tony Pulis is has suffered maybe for being just a little bit too obsessed with his image as a guy who does not get teams relegated, which is obviously a great record to have, mm. but that his teams therefore only ever aim for that. Yeah. And when they find themselves in slightly higher uh, areas of the league table, as I did at the start of this calendar year, they subconsciously think we're not supposed to be here, really, and yeah. they start slipping back.
4: Well, it's like, when, it's like whenever you set a target variable, your, your people end up, Gaming that variable, they end up duking the stats, <laughs> right? It's like forty points is what we need. That's you know, if Tony Pulis is on the record a few different times saying, "Oh, you know, once we get to forty points, oh, I'll be doing somersaults when we get forty points." You know, he, it, it's like really, you say for relegation. He says in his programme notes, programme notes yesterday with this kind of defence of his his time at West Brom. We had a, there was no great escape. He said the season he took over because we achieved our goal with with many matches to go. Achieved our goal means we're not going to get relegated. That's the goal. That's always the goal. And the problem is that if that is the only goal, then everything else kind of goes by the wayside, including the football, the actual thing that happens, the, the thing that you're all supposed to be doing. So rather than focusing on the football that the team is playing, although he does focus to, to an extent, I mean, he, he, has, he, he has his beliefs about that. You know, there is obviously a Pulis style. But rather than really making that the focus, like, let's let's get out there and, like, play well, in every game, he kind of said, "We just need the points, mm-hmm. you know. It doesn't really matter how we get them." There's a lot, there's a lot of people out there, you know, your philosophers, who might be like, "Oh, we've got to get it by playing a certain way." The po- now, the poets, the poets, you know, this uh, is obviously more in, the, in that sort of Joseph Mourinho camp of, "No, we just need, we just need the points." But I do feel as though, um I mean, you, you get this effect that every time they get to forty points, they then stop playing. That's that happened particularly last year. Uh, when they got to they got to forty points after twenty six matches. So there's like a third of the season nearly left. And then they're just down tills. They got like five more points from the from the twelve games that were left. And then they continued that form into this season and now he's been sacked. Um, but you know I do I do feel that it also that mentality we need to get to forty points. Every point is precious. Leads to a really conservative approach because you don't want to lose anything. You don't want to lose any points. It's You know this this phenomenon of loss aversion. If you have, say say you had five euros and you lost it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then compare the other situation. If you're walking down the street, oh, it's five euros. And you pick it up. I'm fine. It's rightful owner. Yeah, continue. Well, I mean, it. you know. Like, Get print there's, out no one, there's no one. There's no one around. The lamp there's, <laughs> the five yeah. there's no. There's no <laughs> one around. It's a. It's a. There's no one there. It's. It's. You, you can keep the five euros It's okay. No one's going to mind.
1: What has there some, been some sort of nuclear apocalypse that has wiped out population for twenty miles around? McDevitt finds a five euro. It's a
4: lonely, it's a mountain path. It could have blown Maybe into not. the
1: nuclear, the post-nuclear landscape. No, yeah. no I'm with Murphy. Somebody's the always going to miss
3: that fiver. Oh, <laughs> I
4: can't do this on you. You're, I can't do this on you. Okay, you are yeah, got a more that, normal yeah, outlook. Murph's way yeah. more okay. corruptible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, so, so that's five euro. So it's Owen, mine, mate. Owen so. was racked with guilt in the case of finding the five euros. Yeah. You won't be. Absolutely So what I'm asking you is... You
3: found five euro on the way in today? Here's
4: one situation. It's not true. Here's one situation. You find five euros. Cool. How do you feel? That's mine. But how do you feel? What's your emotion? I feel, your... I feel uh, like I'm in possession of five euro. I feel good. I feel happy. You, you feel good? Like, I mean, are you, are you like, woohoo, that's amazing? You know, ringing up. Uh, yeah. Well, there's your also an tell them,
1: Some sucker has just lost five euro and I'm sticking it to them. I'm going to spend this five euro. How, well, how, many, how many
4: booth bars is that?
1: Uh, five.
4: Well, that's compared well, to four four you, you, you. You. You want to buy, I don't know, a coffee or something and you put your hand yeah. in your pocket and for five years that you thought was there and it's not. How do you feel? Robbed. Angry. Someone's
1: stolen this from me. Angry
4: and confused. I'm angry, Ken. Angry and confused. Now you feel more angry and confused having lost the five euros than you feel euphoric having found it. Well, I
1: felt pretty euphoric a couple of seconds ago when I had that five euro, but I do feel worse for having lost the five euro. Yes.
4: Once you get to, once it, so so it's worse to lose things than it than it feels good to gain them. Is
3: this the same five euro we're talking about here? No. There's two totally the... separate examples.
4: So this so I think that what this the effect that this has is that you end up playing really safe all the time. Because because it's like losing is just so we can't. That's another point chipped off our forty point tally that we need to get to. You know, we uh, this is a disaster, and and I think it encourages the kind of really conservative football that Tony Pius' teams play. And I think the the problem with that is that nobody ends up looking good playing in a team like this. Nobody, and that over time you might get you might get a few results, and Tony Pius has had plenty of good results, but over time. This gets everyone down because it's, there's no future. There's no future in it. It's like, what am I? What am I doing here? Like, and I, I was looking at the at the, at the record. Tony Peter spent tons of money when he was at Stoke, but he didn't actually spend that much money in the sense of laying out money on players. The most expensive signing was Crouch, and that was ten million, which is not a big signing by by Premier League standards. But the problem was they never made any money selling anyone. The most expensive player they sold was Olaf and Jana. He did sell Barahino since he went to West Brom, but he only got twelve million for Barahino because he kind of lost form by the time he came to be sold. He was rated much higher than that, and in, in the end, they could only get twelve million for him. Mm. Um, and that's that's the biggest sales. Now, this is a problem for a club. It's a problem both for a club that wants to try to make money, and it's a problem for all the players at that club.
1: It's uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Ken.
4: You know, self actualization at the top
1: you're not going to get to self actualization you have physiological at the bottom which is basically just survive you know you need air to breathe food, food water aid. shelter the next one safety hmm. it couldn't be more clear 40 points is hmm. the second level on maslow's hierarchy of needs safety but thereafter no one's feeling any love belonging no one's feeling any esteem yeah. and you're sure is goddamn hell not getting any self-actualization playing for Tony Pulisky. Well,
4: self-actualization is where the, is where the margin is, you know, in terms of uh, getting a move to a bigger club for a larger salary and becoming, you know, a big football star. That's, that's the dream for a lot of these players. You Look at all those guys who've gone to Burnley, right? They haven't gone to Burnley because they think, well, I love Burnley, I love the, the hills. It's actually a beautiful part of, of the country. Wonderful. You know, I want to sit by a roaring log fire in my uh, country house outside Burnley. That's that's not really what they're thinking. They're thinking, I'll go there, play well, get get noticed. I mean, in a sense, you know, Hendrick and Brady went there because of the Euros. You know, I mean, I'm not saying it was just because of Euros, but play well on a big stage like that. You come to attention, everyone is like, oh, you know, these guys are good. They're, they're good players. They could be big game players. You know, let's get them in. But they're hoping that, you know, play a couple of good seasons with Burnley, you'll go somewhere else. Um. This is what happened to all the Southampton players when Murtu Pochettino came to Southampton. Southampton were fairly average. You know, they, they got promoted under the previous manager, Adkins. And it's not as though the players there were were, were better or, or worse, really, when Pochettino arrived. But they suddenly all started to look much better because they were playing in a team that was playing kind of progressive type of football, getting good results. Everyone sort of uh, seems to be highly motivated. Players like Lovren, Lalana. Luke Shaw um you know all these guys the, it, it, this this kind of had almost a legacy Pochettino himself obviously went on to to Tottenham he took Wanyama with him from Southampton um when when uh, a team plays well like that it has it it lifts up the careers of everybody and that never happens with Tony Billis it just never happens
0: yeah i never
3: i had never noticed that to be honest it's a kind of a funny one because i would have thought that you can't undervalue the achievements that that we talk about there, the fact that he, it's not, if it was that easy to just mundanely go about getting a Premier League team to uh, stay in the league for that many seasons, there'd be a ton of managers doing it. And there aren't that many mm. who've been as successful as, as Pulis with clubs that aren't particularly big. But yeah, there must be something missing there that his players can't look good in doing it.
4: Well, they never really, it's, it's, no one has ever been looking at Tony Pulis's teams. And lots of people have ha- have said, have said kind things about them you know most famously andy gray could he do it on a wet wednesday in stoke you know that was the sort of the this these guys are setting the benchmark for uh, english football hard to beat you know old school you know real football values and and he, he was a kind of a standard bearer for that type of thing but somehow Nobody was ever looking at this team thinking, "I'd love to have this guy. I'd love to have this player. Oh, this guy looks absolutely sensational. Let's let's put in a bid for that guy. Let's test Stokes' resolve." It didn't, it didn't happen. It's not happening at West Brom either. The players know this kind of stuff. Mm. You know, they're kind of like, oh, "I'm still here. I'm still at West Brom." Yeah, you know, I'm. Not, which I'm not. Again, West Brom is a great place to be. This is the, this is the other thing. Peulis was saying, "Oh, the club, like all clubs at our level, have, we we encounter heavy weather." West Brom are, I think the twenty. Eighth richest club in the world, probably they've, they've jumped up the scale since because the money's got big. They make more, they had a bigger turnover in the last quarter of figures than Napoli, right? Napoli, who Guardiola was raving about earlier in the season. It's the best team, they're the best team we've played all season. West Brom have more money than they do, you know? I, I'm not saying like Napoli are obviously a bigger club than West Brom, you know? They're, they've they have a, a long, are they even, yeah, they are. Uh, They've got a much bigger stadium, certainly. They're they're a huge football-crazy city, whereas West Brom are in a football-crazy area with lots of other clubs nearby, you know. But, you know, there there is the possibility there to put together a really strong team. You have to find the players outside the UK. This is another issue for Pulis, where he has tended to, to, to look at the sort of domestic market or players, if the player is foreign... Players who have already played in England for somebody—they're the kind of players he tends to go for—and it is very difficult to succeed in the Premier League if you limit yourself to that. We'll talk to Jacob Steinberg
3: and John Bruno a little more about that in a few minutes. So we might leave that there for the time being. Although we're going to talk to them also about David Moyes, again, whose yeah. debut in, as West Ham manager nobody was
4: particularly blown away by. Yeah, this Moyes is here doing his post-match TV interview, and and the first thing he says is. just generally asked to express his comment on the 2-0 defeat that he's just seen his West Ham team suffer against Watford?
5: I think most people would have expected something like that because that's what it's been, you know, before. So we're going to have to improve. Uh, Hopefully we'll get a chance to work with them over the coming weeks and, and make a difference. Did it underline to you perhaps how difficult this job's going to be? You've got players low on confidence and an unhappy crowd. Yeah, I did. I, f- I found that out today, and actually, I was only ever going to find out what they were like until I sort of took them and and worked with them to, eh, during the week, and also, more importantly, saw the game today. But I could see that you know they needed they needed a couple of things to go for them, and the big moments we had, eh, said a couple in the first half and one just after half time, when they didn't go for it. I could see the sort of confidence draining away from them.
2: The games come thick and fast. Is it possible to turn it around
5: quickly? Well, we've got to do. We've got to try that. You know, we've got to try and get find a way of winning, which I said. You know, we'll we'll try and find a way. Oh, well, well just
4: decided. hopefully is not. You we've just got, slumped we, down in your chair there. Right? I Why? did. He
3: makes me sad sometimes, David yeah. Moyes. The answer to that last question is, of course, we can. We've. I'm in here now. I'm going to sort this out. I've got, uh, if the players don't want to do it, I'll drop those players and I'll bring in some youngsters. Whatever. Just say something that rallies the troops to a certain extent rather than... Well, we'll we'll try. Yeah, we'll try to to come out of this.
1: The first answer as well basically says, well, what do you expect? This is what you've been seeing. As if... I can't change it. The idea that I could have any impact on this is so laughable. Yeah. I mean, what are you talking about? And isn't isn't, isn't the
3: manager... Isn't the whole cliche that a manager manager is is supposed to have an instant impact? It's like something new manager bans. The
4: the fake sugar rush of the new manager. and, And you win the first game or two and then you go back to the... I mean, people... But maybe maybe Moyes is it's a kind of depressive realism that is what people expected. He was right about that.
3: Uh, well, if he's analysing the performance as a TV pundit, I'd be, I say that's perfectly fine. That's good analysis. Is <laughs> not, nothing wrong with that?
4: It's not his job as a manager in a post-match interview to, to tell the truth. Really, yeah, it's, no. not, it's not. That's not the first priority. You know, avoid lies if possible. Sure, but truth is not the absolute. Um, you know, end game here. The, the north. Anyway, we'll talk with, with Jacob and John about that. Uh, but there's another another interesting thing happened. Obviously, Arsenal beat Tottenham, which was an, a big... Now, that wasn't one that people were expecting. Least of all, Adam Crafton, who is a young journalist uh, who works... Well, I, I, I don't know if it's correct to say he works for the Daily Mail. He certainly has a lot of work in the Daily Mail. Uh, he's, ha- he's done some very good stuff, actually. Um, uh, for instance, uh, he was the guy who did that piece with Diego Costa... If you remember Diego, Diego Costa at oh, home, oh yeah, he door him, yeah. Uh, Chelsea are, 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 it was just around the start of the season, you know, Chelsea were about to commence their title defense. Diego Costa, the, their mm-hmm. star striker from the previous season, was sitting at home in Brazil. Adam <laughs> Crafton just went up and knocked on the door and uh, it turned out that he was there and uh, got a great piece out of it. So he's done like a few, he had a piece with Rubinho last week, which was also pretty good. He's done a few of these uh, types of things. So what I'm saying on is, I respect his work as a journalist. Uh, he wrote, uh, preview, or he he did a combined Arsenal Tottenham eleven for ahead of the North London derby, which was just all Tottenham players. Yeah, you know, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a little joke there, rubbing a little bit of salt in the wounds of Arsenal as Arsenal John,
2: Football Club, lad,
4: as John Aldridge uh, might say. Yeah. And of course, Arsenal went and won the game two 0 much to a lot of people's surprise. Um, Pochettino not too happy about the, some of the decisions. You know, there was a Mike Dean special in there, which he didn't appreciate. Two two goals before half time, Spurs pretty bad. I watched uh, an epic rant from Garth Crooks, or at least that's what I was told it was. In fact, it was Garth Crooks basically saying Arsenal were really up for this game, and Tottenham didn't respond to that until it was too late. <laughs> I thought, well, I mean, it looks as though Garth has managed to keep his knickers on there. Like you know, I mean, he didn't completely lose control in the way I was led to believe by this uh, clip headline. But uh, the point is. That Arsenal then tweeted uh, to Adam Crafton, having uh, whoever had uh, was in charge of the Arsenal FC Twitter, tweeted Adam Crafton with like a was it like a winky emoji and a little gif of Mesut Ozil was he drinking tea?
3: It looks like he's yeah, it's just him. having
4: a sip he, in, his, in his typically stylish and elegant mm. Ozil-like way, and it was a sort of a, oh dear Adam, you know, I mean, it was like, it was kind of a friendly, a little bit of friendly banter between Arsenal Football Club and, uh, and a journalist. Uh, Arsenal, though, were followed by 12 million people, Owen. Uh, so as Adam Crafton then tweeted a little bit later, he said, read this, I picked a team, Arsenal won, I look a bit silly, congrats to Arsenal. But since they tweeted it to 12 million people, I've had all-day harassment on here, including anti-Semitic, homophobic abuse, and people wishing me dead, I can handle it but would not advise clubs to repeat this. So, yeah, this was, is this was sort of an interesting situation. Um caused a bit of, people might have been, anyone who was watching football Twitter yesterday, I'm sure we'll have been aware of this, this debate that was going on between people who were saying, you know, Arsenal, what are you thinking? You can't do this. Um, and people who were saying, <laughs> screw you, journof journo scum, you deserve everything that you get. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, I think first of all, the Arsenal clearly did not mean to unleash this torrent of uh, bile upon the head of Adam Crafton. It's not like, for instance, Milo Yiannopoulos last year, sicking on his followers onto Leslie Jones. That's Leslie Jones is the, the, the actress, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters yeah. actress, yeah. And he said like she looked like a dude and all this kind. Of, he was he was like insulting her in the knowledge that the people who follow him would pile on and like. Send her much worse stuff. You know, I think he, he clearly was orchestrating that. Arsenal clearly were not doing anything like that.
3: But maybe didn't account for what their followers would just naturally go and do. And I'm saying naturally, it probably shouldn't be a natural recourse. But if there are 12 million people, they're going to be, even if it's a small, small, small percentage of those 12 million, that's a lot of people who are about to stick the boot into this guy.
4: Yeah, that's that. That's the problem, I guess. That's that's the problem. So, do they should they have uh, do they have more of a, a duty of care? I mean, they didn't meet. The, I think what they did was was innocent, but maybe when you have twelve million followers, you need to take into account the scale. It's a bit like this argument, you know, about the the um, gun laws in America. One of the arguments that that comes up is uh, when the founding fathers wrote this right to bear arms into the Constitution, like the maximum firing rate of you know the then available weapons was like. Three rounds per minute, and they were accurate to within about fifteen meters. You know, <laughs> like the guns just really weren't that dangerous. Like if you if you were able to run away from someone, they almost certainly it would it would be like a one in a million to actually shoot you. <laughs> Whereas now you've got these these weapons that can spew out like six hundred rounds a minute. You know, with a range of two miles uh, at like uh, pinpoint accuracy. So you're actually talking about something quite different now. This is like a this is not really comparable, and maybe something something a bit like that is happening with uh, with speech, like in the sense that they also have free they they also put put in a thing about free speech at that time. But like the biggest uh, the biggest audience that you could reach at any one time was you know five thousand off a pamphlet or you know a couple of thousand in a in a hall or a town square if you shouted really loud. Whereas now Arsenal can reach twelve million people in all around the world in one instant. Uh, and this does kind of make it like there's this massive amplica- um, amplificatory power of social media, which is kind of she's. I mean, this is what, you can see how how bad it is when like Trump does this, like deliberately. You know, he yeah. he has got like 44 million people now or something, or you know, many of them are people, and when and he actually does attack people like low IQ Mika or whatever, guaranteeing like just this onslaught for days and days, which actually never really, never really stops once he's, once he's attacked somebody. He's obviously doing that deliberately. Arsenal didn't do this deliberately, but maybe they do need to kind of figure at this sort of scale. I mean, they have had a... They, they, if you remember, it was around this time last year that they had a, um, another kind of unintended consequences uh, moment, social media moment for Arsenal, which was they put up, like, support. They tweeted their support for Rainbow Laces which is like the um, kind of gay rights awareness uh, initiative uh, that the Premier League does, you know, once a year. Rain- all the players, some of the players were rainbow laces. And Arsenal put up like an Arsenal crest in like the rainbow colors and put it on their Facebook. Now, I don't know how many people are following Arsenal on Facebook, but it's a lot, probably more than the 12 million that follow them on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about people from all over the world. And <laughs> in some parts of the world, um, homosexuality is still considered to be an abomination. So what you immediately had was a whole lot of people getting on this again. Gay Arsenal, get out of my club. I mean, I remember actually taking down some of these tweets at the time or or, or some of their some of the sort of Facebook comments. And it's just it was absolutely amazing. You know what it was like Arsenal's well intentioned tweet to show their support for this enlightened initiative as far as they were concerned resulted in one of the most unpleasant explosions of toxicity on the internet that day.
3: So are football clubs supposed to just tweet and put out the blandest stuff possible? Here's uh, an interview with Mesut and I'm delighted to score the goal. Or do they not have to try to engage in some way that people actually get something from their social
4: media? No, it's it's, 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 a, it's a really difficult dilemma. I mean, I think that Arsenal... Um, so, certainly should like I mean if they want to support something like Rainbow Lace absolutely put it out there and then it's it's kind of unfortunate that like a huge proportion of their fan base, I mean, and, and I don't mean to single out Arsenal it's just any internationally supported club like these football clubs are very rare in terms of their institutions that have massive uh, cross-cultural appeal a lot, of, a lot of times popular institutions or celebrities are only popular within one culture and it's not the case for Premier League football clubs but they still have to sort of put out there what they think they they are about you know so i, I don't i wouldn't say we shouldn't uh, put up something in support of rainbow laces because like a quarter of the comments that we get are going to be uh like uh Vile <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but maybe they do have to consider if there is a risk of singling out an individual for this although it's not their intention um Maybe they sh- maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they, it's something they need to watch for. If there is a danger that an individual will end up will end up getting monstered like this, I mean they're they're sort of a giant uh, staggering around this landscape, and most of us are most people are like ants, you know, and they're but stepping this, on a lot of ants.
1: Yeah, but this isn't a, a usual case of internet doxing in that you broadcast information about this person that that person didn't want. I mean, the guy wrote a column for the Daily Mail. Yes. The idea being that people would read the column. Arsenal pointed their 12 million followers (laughs) in the direction of... But you know what I mean? It's not like, you know, Oh, here is something that we are about to reveal about Adam Crafton that he wanted... Desperately to keep hidden, it was a column that he wrote the, for. The a column huge just got more popular
4: newspaper. than yeah. than than anyone had anticipated, and the and and obviously, then there is this whole other uh, side of this question. I mean, the, the 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 people who have who have done wrong here really are all of the people writing the abuse on Twitter to Adam Craft.ing you know, they're they're the, they are the problem, but it's sort of like at this scale, twelve million people. You sort of mathematically know that you're going to have quite a lot of those people in such in such a number, so you have to kind of factor it in. There will be a lot of lunatics out there who will who will use this in the in the wrong way. Um, but what a lot of people, I suppose, are making it, were looking at this thinking, well, hang on a second. You do work for the Daily Mail now. As I, you know, I've already said Adam Crafton is a he's a good football, you know, a young journalist, a good journalist who's done who's done lots of good work in football. I'm pretty sure he wasn't in the editorial meeting that decided to put "crush the saboteurs" on the front page of the Daily Mail or "enemies of the people," as they did. You know, when when these three judges said, "Oh, the way you're trying to do Brexit is illegal." Uh, <laughs> he doesn't, in my eyes, bear any responsibility for that. But some people would say, well, you're working for this institution that does this kind of thing all the time. You know, I saw Neil Custis, a journalist of the Sun, was sort of tweeting um, tweeting his support. And, you know, what was he? He said, I hope at Arsenal social media team are feeling suitably smug over the torrent of abuse they subjected a thoroughly nice bloke to yesterday. And again, I think there'd be quite a few people looking at that and going, sorry, who is it that you work for? Mm. You know, has, are you sure that are you sure that your own employers haven't maybe from time to time been guilty of subjecting people who didn't really deserve it to torrents of abuse? Have you registered that complaint with them every time you've seen it done, guy? I, I hope you know, for the sake of being consistent, you know, it's it's not just the case of you know journalists standing up for journalists. Maybe journalists also need to recognize. Certainly, it's it's obvious to a lot of people who I saw tweeting just this type of thing to Neil Custis. It's obviously of hang on a second, you've got no right to do that.
1: Describing the son describing Raheem Sterling as a football idiot, uh, savaging him for buying his mother a nice house.
4: Yeah. I mean, there's, and and I mean, there's, there's been some, I mean, it has been kind of the stock and trade of the son for a long time. They would obviously argue, deserved in all cases. I mean, that's the, that's the case they would make, you know, public interest and all that. But undoubtedly, they have put a lot of people under the, the blazing sort of, uh, you know, magnifying intensity of, of this type of attention and resulted in a lot of harassment to those people. Again, maybe some say, well, it was never our intention. You know, some, some of our readers might have taken this to extremes. But, you know, uh, I suppose a lot of people are looking at it thinking, well, I can't feel too sorry about this, given that this, this kind of thing actually happens to – it happens to footballers all the time. Look at poor Lovren. You know, we were talking about Lovren, like – well, he he cocked up against Tottenham, got subbed off. I mean, imma- imagine robbed. Imagine what a football footballer's social media is like after after a performance like that.
1: Well, his house got robbed. Lovering's house got robbed. I mean, this is you know it's a, a it's an adjunct to the fact that he's playing terribly. But I mean, you know like, that's his entire life is like he he got robbed. He maintains that a uh, gas was poured in through his house to ensure that he was him and his children's. Uh, uh, were asleep while this robbery was that, committed that's all like, kind
3: of a side issue though because there was nothing there was nobody that's just people being pricks do you know what I mean as opposed to anyone going after anyone fanning the flames of that that's just that wasn't the newspapers going after loveran or a football club it was just a player playing badly and supporters being assholes but do you the, know what I mean I just, I
4: just it's a real it's a real tough world out there that's what I'm trying to say it's getting tougher it's getting more obnoxious and abusive and uh, it, 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 I suppose, a lot of journalists were able to see with clarity. This is terrible. This kind of this harassment. I,
1: but, but but maybe that's because there he is there. That's the guy I work beside every weekend. Yeah. As and, and opposed to thinking, oh right, well, yeah. But also, we work for uh, companies that do this to other people, and like it's exactly and, the same and, for and, them and, as it is. And, for again, um, and
4: again, just to just to reiterate. I would not in any way blame Adam Grafton, who works these these departments are separate you know it's often people from the outside like well you work for this crowd well no not really like you're not again he's he's writing like interviews with Rubinho, not like these judges are traitors to Britain of course you know yeah, what, you yeah. know what I mean so I don't I really don't want to sort of lump him in with that but but like when you do, when you work for the same organization it's like well hang on but what about clearing up the, the mess in your own front yard before you get on the arsenal about it That's it for today's report on sport.
3: They're all pampered. We haven't got leaders. All
2: They're all just headphones. They don't communicate. We can't get anything out of them. That's why, we're no good. Two. They're all just headphones. They don't keep it on the pitch, they don't communicate off the pitch. They're all pampered. Oh, we're getting ready for Russia. Good luck. And then after that, we'll be building a team for Timbuktu. Timbuktu.
0: How have England reacted to that equaliser?
2: Perfectly. Um, no panic, Calm. straight down. Continue dominating the game, playing and staying in Iceland's halves. It's been the perfect response, you'd think that, no problem.
0: England, after four minutes!
2: And they still lost! Maggie your guys took a hell of a beating. Maggie your boys took a hell of a beating. The only thing that they have got is the big boy up front, Sigurdsson, who really Sig Thorson. Oh my word! Oh, my oh,
3: tell us, talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened. Oh, talk just say,
5: Sig Thorson.
4: He just cannot. Yeah,
3: well, we're going to talk about a couple of managers now, one of whom is just starting out in his new adventure and another one who's finished up. Tony Pulis gets to keep his record of never getting a team relegated from the Premier League, but not exactly in the manner he would have wanted. We're joined by John Brune and Jacob Steinberg. John, you were at the Hawthorns. Uh, I think it's fair to say the writing was on the wall there at the weekend.
2: Oh, definitely, definitely. And the person who thought uh, it was on the wall most of all was Tony Pulis himself who, um, I mean, in the, even in the pre-match programme notes, there was a lengthy self-justification of his record at the club. Afterwards, in the post-match press conference, which was carried, on, carried out as usual with him stood up, um, he talked about how uh, he was looking, looking, essentially looking forward to spending time with his family and uh, doing the work that he does for certain charities. Uh, as well as a few drinks that night with some pals from Bristol who were coming over to his Bournemouth home, this was a manager demob happy. He really didn't. Uh, he didn't. He really didn't fancy his chances of staying on. I get the suspicion actually that he'd been told uh, by uh, the chairman John Williams, who he said he'd had a chat with, that that was pretty much it. So it proved. Um, and the owner of the club uh, over from China was sat in the stands. I will have heard West Brom fans singing all the way through the game for him to get out of their club. So, um, as inevitabilities come in football, his sacking was definitely one of them.
3: This is a team that was in the top 10 in the Premier League at the start of the calendar year. John, what exactly has gone wrong for them?
2: Well, I think one of the problems with with Tony Pulis is... um, The greatest accusation you've had against him, a manager who, in his own terms, has been successful, is that football clubs want progress. They want to do more than just survive. And then it comes to the point where uh, you have to progress. And uh, this was the accusation levelled him at Stoke. Eventually, fans became acquainted with the idea of being a mid-table team, wanted more from the team, but still watched the same football that his team were playing. Um and eventually they become bored of that, they become frustrated. Pulis himself doesn't really try to change things, apart from over the summer he bought you know, a, a fairly decent raft of players. I mean, he, bought, he brought Kieran Gibbs and Gareth Barry into the team. I mean, they're both pretty decent, you know, ex England players. Oliver Burke, Scottish winger, that, you know, a lot of us are expected of. And then there's Kukoviak from Paris Saint-Germain, a player that a lot of people were looking to get when he was on loan. And uh, the the accusation against uh, Pulis that you commonly hear is not a good manager of better players. And this was something that happened to him at Stoke Stoke when he had Shy, He brought in players like Michael Owen and uh, Peter Crouch and couldn't really get a tune out of him. I think, essentially, Tony Pulis hits a glass ceiling And at that point, you have to decide to release the safety catch and get him out of the club. And that's what West Brom have done now. They've got quite a long time to save themselves. Though I would be interested to see who they get in. Um, There was some laughter after the game where someone said, how about they get Sam Allardyce in? And you can just imagine (laughs) it's a pretty similar situation happening if they got Big Sam in.
4: Yeah. Jacob, uh, meanwhile, at West Ham... um, they were they were sort of slipping into the English football vortex that West Brom are trying to extricate themselves from um, by introducing David Moyes, uh, who lost 2-0 in his opening game. He said something like, I think that's what everyone was expecting, something very weird like that. And there was so many of the familiar kind of negative lines. You know, we'll try to improve. Hopefully, you know, good things will happen. Talking about his players as they he seemed to have learned very little from everything that's happened to him at his last three unsuccessful jobs.
5: Yeah, I think that was a worrying sign from from David Moyes because it was a slip into the bad old negative ways, which he would seemed to make a conscious effort to avoid. Um, We think back to his unveiling uh, in the Great Britain suite at the London Stadium. He strode in with this fixed, sort of slightly manic grin that he really looked like he was... Forcing, you know, a, a big conscious effort to appear positive and and bright and everything uh, in front of a huge group of um, journalists on uh, who he was meeting for the first time, having come in, you know, facing a lot of social media negativity from supporters who didn't particular, most of whom didn't particularly want him. I remember him, him being asked by um, uh, a colleague, uh, "Are you in a relegation battle?" and, and he said. No, no. This this squad of players is too good. And and before the game, before the Watford game as well, he was, you know, trying to keep things positive. He's talked about what a good manager he is. If you try and get him back to uh, some of the things that have gone wrong in the last few years, his sort of default response is first of all to just write off Sunderland as a bit of a joke club at the moment, and also then to immediately start talking about eleven years at Everton. But yesterday, after the game, um. There was certainly a lot of the negativity that Sunderland fans quickly grew to loathe uh, last season, um, and thought you know was a huge part in their relegation. <laughs> I think um, from from what I've experienced from Sunderland fans in the last couple of weeks is is a real hatred <laughs> of everything that David Moyes stands for, and they kind of I think obviously <laughs> there are deeper issues going on at Sunderland um, beyond David Moyes. He wasn't the only reason they went down, but they kind of point they kind of pointed to the fact that. Uh, before he arrived they'd actually done quite well under Allardyce the record was pretty good at the end of that season um, before Allardyce took the England job and they they sort of said you know Moyes he had a functioning defence that he inherited he had players like Wabi Kasri, who he went on to kind of alienate um, and he had Jermaine Defoe who was scoring loads and loads of goals at the time and that negativity seemed to drag the club down and already at West Ham after that really poor defeat yesterday i know they had some chances um either side of half time when it was one nil but overall they were played off the part by Watford for most of it it was it was worrying from from Moyes because there's there's such a uh sense of division it, it within the club uh, i think everybody you know this morning has a lot of the papers are talking about the, the chance towards andy Carroll, the chance towards the fans and uh, uh sorry towards the board um, which is particularly worrying from the away support, which you know you kind of think is the most loyal, uh, more so, less less likely to turn on the side than the, than at home and everything. Um, so yeah, I think that West Ham West Ham fans often vibe off a charisma, a, a manager with charisma, and I think that's why Slaven Bilic held on for so long. David Moyes doesn't have that same kind of a personality. That doesn't make him necessarily a bad manager, but if you think back to someone like Alan Pardew who was able to create a buzz at at West Ham in the promotion season and then back in 2005 and then when he took them to the cup final as a promoted team in 2006, he actually created an atmosphere of positivity in the club. And and, um, I think that someone like David Moyes, it it could be, you know, it could be really backfire on them if he can't spread some kind of unity because there's such a... Level of hatred towards the board at the moment, which is threatening to weigh the team down, and the team is not good.
4: Do you give him any chance of, of being able to do okay. that? Because it, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about Sunderland fans and their hatred of David Moyes, because that's it's a strong way to feel about a manager who, okay, was was very unsuccessful. But Sunderland had a lot of terrible managers. I mean, Allardyce had had done okay, but before him, it was just just avoiding relegation. You know, by the by the narrowest of margins, um, so it's not so Moyes did that much worse than everybody else. Why do they hate him so much, and why, and why do you think this guy who had been successful for a long time at Everton, or at least had had created a club that had a, you know, definitely an identity and a good sort of spirit about it, appears to have completely lost that ability to 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 uh, bring people together?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, Gus Boyett and Paulo are... are not uh, not done well at premier league level but i think back to you know Poet talking about miracles and kind of somehow inspiring one great escape before it all fell apart and you know de canio charging down the touchline when they won that game at um, st james's park uh, when when he somehow got them to stay up and there was never that sense with moyes of um, that that he ever felt like he could actually pull off that escape even though he had he actually had a summer and a, and a full season and i think that they they also they they pointed to the fact that he did have a little bit of of money and a lot of it went on former Everton players, which had a bit of a jobs to the jobs for the boys feel to it. Um, at, at West Ham, I think that he's he's inherited a really lopsided squad. He, he he said the other day, I've got four or five players who want to play on the left, and you know he's already started. He singled out Marco Arnautovic, who um, who was taken off yesterday because of an injury. Uh, but as someone, <laughs> 24 million record pound uh, record signing um, for West Ham in the summer, as someone who hadn't been working hard enough under Slaven Bilic, um, and he, he's he's already under pressure now, and he's going to have to try and somehow get this club to be unified and and together because it's it's such a toxic atmosphere at the moment, and uh, if he can't if he can't turn that mood around, then. At, at, at that kind of stadium, they're playing Leicester on Friday night. You can really see it spilling over into, you know, re- really outright anger. And, and in the end, I think it will just turn into apathy as well because of the type of stadium they're in. <laughs> the alienation that supports are feeling at the moment means that um, th- this could really <laughs> go south quickly for West Ham.
3: Yeah, we've talked about that stadium, John, quite a lot uh, with you as well on, on this podcast. <laughs> we don't need to get into that, but obviously one thing that Moyes and Pewdis have in Common is that they're both British football managers and both have been around the game in the country for a hell of a long time. and been managing for a long time. Has the sun set on these these British footballing dinosaurs? Do you think is the as Sam Allardyce said in it? What well, he
4: was trying to be withering about? He, he it, was on the, on T, uh, Brexit be, be. TV in Dubai with, um, or or rather Qatar with with. With uh, keys and grey, yeah. He's he talking about
3: the Premier League is the foreign league now in England, and he's actually right about that. Of course, he is. It's been it's been getting more and more international for about twenty five ever since the Premier League started up. Is it the case that maybe some of these older football men haven't quite stuck with the times, or is that a little bit unfair? Maybe particularly on Poulos, who, as we said, did have a team in the top ten in the Premier League until a few months ago.
2: Well, I, th- I think there's there's that boys' club thing, isn't there? I mean, Rory Smith wrote a, a good article about. that that Sam Allardyce complaint which was you know oh British managers aren't getting jobs where Rory actually pointed out hang on all the jobs are going to this collection of boys you know the lads Um, but I think we've seen a few examples of this recently haven't we where the there are certain managers whose entire reputation are based on results now they're not necessarily outstanding results of the type that Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola deliver but they're of safety and you're not having to worry about relegation and things like that but the football that they also bring um, is not particularly entertaining for the public and as football becomes more of a entertainment franchise then uh, the public starts to complain a bit more I mean it, it's not dissimilar to uh, the, the, some of the stuff that I heard about Martin O'Neill last week when I was over in Ireland you know if he doesn't deliver the results, what what else does he leave us with? And football now is this idea is this idea of progress and projects, and those football men don't provide that. They just provide the fact that hey, this football team you know might win a few games, and uh, we'll we'll probably keep you up, and uh, that's that's what that's all you can hope for as a football fan. And hope's a big part of being a football fan. And if you've got managers that don't provide hope, then that group of Individuals who essentially supply, uh, you know, an executive form of mediocrity, then eventually their time will end, and it does look like it's it's times up there. I mean, Tony Pulis was talking as if he would get another job, and I'm sure he will attempt to. Uh, and Sam Allardyce, despite retiring, does seem to be interested in working more. They're not going away, but uh, they're cashier over over the Premier League. It's certainly fading a little bit, I
4: think. See, I do think that, you know, when Aldo says that the Premier League is a foreign league, I I, I think it's true. Um, it's, just a, it's just a reality that managers have to adapt to. He's actually one that has adapted to it quite well, I feel. Going going all the way back to Bolton, you know, when he had guys like uh, Okocha and Hierro and Campo and Jorkayev, you know, he has never, uh, he's never kind of struggled, it appears, to work with players from different cultures, which I don't think you can necessarily say about Pulis um, who overwhelmingly buys British and Irish players. I mean, if you look at the the West Brom squad at the moment, it's it, there's like so many sort of Northern Ireland players. You know, it's like a, a 90s kind of feel to the, to the makeup of the squad. This is a guy who in 2005 was sacked by the then owners of Stoke for Failing to tap into the foreign market.
3: Uh, yeah, well, I'm just thinking. Sorry, can't go across, but Sean Dyche is doing the exact same thing and has been ridiculously yeah. successful for yeah. Burnley. So it also works.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, if you buy Brady and Hendrick instead of McLean, uh, maybe you can well, get. Don't be, pitted, don't be pitting the Irish players <laughs> against each other. That's, that's not <laughs> but, right. But the, but you know, I mean, is this kind of a, a feature of it? Do you think? I mean, Jacob, I know that, that West. That uh, if you look at the players that uh, David Moyes signed for Sunderland. You know, you've got a South African there, a Nigerian there. Um, Brian Aviado. I think, is from Costa Rica. They did all play for Everton, though. Uh, there was that sort of uh, connection that he had. That, that there's, there's, there's a basic problem. I, I saw Pew this in the program notes that John mentioned earlier sa- said character is really important to me bringing in signings. But character often seems to me to be a way a manager says players who I can relate to and connect with you know what I mean? And that's clearly not going to be the case oftentimes if you buy, you know, a Richarlison figure, someone like that who, you know, maybe doesn't speak great English and, you know, how do I really communicate with this guy? But, like, the fact is, like, it's a, it's not ultimately about the connection between a manager and player. It's about what the player can do on the field for the manager. Someone like Richarlison delivers. And, and maybe managers like Moyes and Pulis are not giving them are making it more difficult for themselves by focusing on on character and relatability in their signings
5: well i, I guess rich um is is someone who is, is fortunate to come in and he's got a portuguese speaking well he's got a portuguese manager and obviously he's from brazil so they speak the same language um but but i think if you if you were to take the example of watford they have so many interesting signings and interesting Managers uh, over the last couple of years, and despite the constant upheaval, there they're one of the most sort of enigmatic and intriguing sides in the league. Um, they're probably not going to achieve more than uh, West Brom, or uh, you know Moyes' Everton back back in the day. Um, w- will this season? But they'll certainly, I think, give their fans a lot more excitement. I think that's what John was kind of alluding to before um but i think it comes back to as well that the, the best managers can relate to to, uh, to to any kind of player um if you okay sir alex ferguson is a is a freakish example but he was able to adjust to any kind any type of player from any kind of generation over the course of what 25 years at, at manchester united whether it was um, you know Brian Robson back in the day, or you know, the the class of '92 that came through through you know, Eric Cantona. It was all different types of characters, different nationalities all the time. brought Bring it all the way through to the to the modern player, and he didn't have any problem ever doing that. And I guess um, Pochettino at Spurs is, is is similar to that. He 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 creates a vibe where every single player is is pulling for him. Um, he's he's such a likable man and everything that. Everybody wants to play for him, and I guess some 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 of the sometimes you just see the the lack of imagination and um, from from someone like Moyes in in the signings and the idea that I can't I can't possibly trust uh, a foreign player because of, because they don't have the same the same kind of character. I mean, Watford yesterday had uh, they probably had as many foreign players on the on the pitch as as. Um, as West Ham did, and everything um, they had a few, they had a few young English players in there. Like uh, I don't want to call Cleverly, a young English player, but uh, Will Hughes who scored his first goal and everything. Um, but they, they, it's not like this, this team with a lot of unusual signings from from foreign con- from foreign countries lacked any kind of character. Um, David, you go back to David Moyes uh, talking about British getting more Britishness into the side uh, when he was at Sunderland, and I think that really, uh, I think that really <laughs> hit home with Sunderland fans. I think it was around January when he when he spoke about um, a few of the players who he wanted to get in. There, he couldn't trust some of the foreign players, and I think that's that's what holds some of these British managers back. The idea that the foreign players lack um, some kind of bravery in the it's the it's the wet, windy Tuesday night in Stoke idea writ large, really.
3: Okay, that's great stuff. Yeah, sorry, John, you want to come back in?
2: I was just going to say, yeah, I'm just, just um, I suppose I've been a keen observer of David Moyes um, over the years, and I was there yesterday. Uh, and I, I saw him at Man. Uh, the thing is, at every club he's been at since Everton, and maybe it was the same at Everton, it didn't see so much of him there. He does seem to think every time that the players that he's got are not good enough, mm. and he even said that at Manchester United when he took over a team of title winners. That does seem to be a problem for yeah, him. Yeah. The play, the players are never good enough. Yeah, well,
3: that is the point that Ken was making as well. Maybe even if you think that, you probably shouldn't say it. Brilliant stuff, though. Listen, Jacob, John, thanks a million.
2: Cheers, lads. For that sort of incident, I care not one shot about his supreme talent. He launched himself six feet into the crowd and kung fu kicked a supporter.
3: I'm just looking at the Burnley squad here. Ken, as a matter of fact, because I threw that example into you uh, during the chat, is uh, another way of doing things. The, maybe the more old fashioned way of going British and Irish largely. They're in seventh position in the Premier League with twenty-one. It looks like of a twenty-nine-man squad coming from Britain and Ireland.
4: Yes, uh, that's a pretty high proportion. Well, look, I don't know. Maybe Sean Dyche has has looked at it and thought, you know what, uh, British and Irish players are actually underrated now in the market. Uh, you know, it's like everyone wants to sign French and Brazilian players. They're kind of regarded as players from you know who are good at football. No one is interested in, you know. Whereas your Uruguayans, you know, your your sort of uh, Danes or whatever are underrated. This has kind of been a feature. I remember there was there was stuff in about uh, this idea in the Cooper shamansky book a few years ago, um, Soccernomics. Uh, you know, and maybe maybe he figures everyone thinks Irish player. I mean, has has Wenger signed an Irish player? You know what I mean? I he just, don't doesn't, think he so. just doesn't think we can cut it. Maybe he's like these guys are actually underrated. I can get these guys in. In fairness, you saw did you see Hendrick and Brady for Burnley the other day? Oh yeah, Hendrick and and Brady both setting up goals with great passes, just picking out guys in good positions with, with beautifully weighted passes. It hurt me. It did. It it did didn't it? it? Actually, but it really stung me. But they, it shows like out. they they are actually capable of doing this. If you know, there's somebody there to pass to and all that.
3: That's pretty much it for today's football podcast. We will see you from tomorrow and for the rest of the week. If you're part of the world service, thanks very much again. Thanks for watching, here Thank you, thank, thank you, you Ken. thank you. See girl. you later. How it. that, the second time it has gone off. Never go home. They never go
4: home. They never go home. Those 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 boys.